Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. Right now, welcome to 80s Anonymous. Let me be the first to congratulate all of you for being so brave. Together, we'll beat this addiction you have to that decade. Let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. First names only, followed by your particular 80s musical obsession. Hi, uh, I'm Joe. Hi, Hi Joe. Joe. I'm into spandex metal, like, you know, Motley Crue uh-huh. and, and Poison. And... I've got a mullet, man. Oh, 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 there, there. No, it's okay. Let it all out. We're all friends here. It's all right. Have a seat. Uh, next. I'm Frank. Hey, hi, 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 Frank. I don't have a mullet, but I do have every single record by both Huey Lewis and the News and Kenny Loggins. I've also watched Top Gun more than 2,000 times just to hear that Take My Breath Away song. Very good. Very good. And uh, next. I uh, Yeah. I'm Vern. Hi, Hi Vern. And I love the Smiths. What? Oh, oh, no. No. Yes, no, 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 really, really. The poignant lyrics of Morrissey, the chiming guitars of Johnny Marr, the competent drumming of Mike Joyce. Mike Joyce? Mike Joyce? Get out. Get out! Can't you see these people are hurting? We don't need your hopelessly depressive and semi-suicidal kind here. Leave! Calm down, people. It's all right. He's gone. Honestly, I'll, I'll never understand that type of 80s person. I mean, I mean, what's the big deal about the Smiths? This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. So, for once in my life, let me get what I want. Lord knows it would be the first time. The Smiths from August 1984 and please, please, please let me get what I want. And yes, there were three pleases in there. I did make that up. One minute and 50 seconds of naked emotion and unbearable sadness. Now, to some, this is the perfect Smiths song. To others, it's pretty much the wimpiest damn thing that they've ever heard in their lives. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is one of those shows where we try to figure out why certain acts of the past continue to be so revered and worshipped. In the past, we've talked about bands like the Velvet Underground and the Stone Roses and Bauhaus and Iggy Pop and Elvis Costello, and this time, it's the Smiths, a jangly English pop band with their outspoken and enigmatic lead singer. Everyone has what they consider to be their golden age of rock music, and I'll tell you when yours was. You ready? Your golden age of rock was that period between your middle teens and your early 20s. That's when you have the most time and energy and the greatest desire to invest in music, both physically and financially. This is also the time when music is front and center emotionally and spiritually in your life. The music that you discover and adopt as your own in your mid-teens to early 20s will stay with you forever. 
Now, if you came of age musically in the mid-1980s and you hung out with a certain crowd, there was an excellent chance that you were exposed to the Smiths. And if you were the sensitive and introspective type, chances are the Smiths became your, well, not just your band, but your salvation. In fact, if you haven't got this already, you might have a book on the Smiths, which is, honest to God, called Songs That Saved Your Life. Even though the band released just four proper albums in their existence, few groups from any decade inspired the kind of devotion that we continue to see with the Smiths and the awe that is still accorded to Morrissey, the singer, and his ex-partner, guitarist Johnny Marr. All right, so why? That's what we're going to try and find out. Before this hour is through, you'll hopefully understand what the big deal is about the Smiths, as this person apparently does. Okay, Miriam, you're on the air. Talk to Morrissey. Oh, my God. Morrissey, you're, like, you're like so special, and your songs just, like, speak to me, you know? And everybody wonders why I like you so much. I mean, not everybody, but, like, kids my own age, because I'm, like, 13, and everybody's listening to, like, new kids on the block stuff and wearing those stupid shiny black shoes. And, um, and it's just, I don't know, it's just you're so special, and you're, like, the best singer ever. And I almost wanted to go to, I mean, I almost got to your concert, and it was so weird when I didn't get to it, and it, when it filled out in 20 minutes. The Smiths' cult of personality was centered around Stephen Patrick Morrissey, a kid from Manchester who fancied himself to be a romantic loner. In the 1970s, he'd devour music magazines and write letters to the editor, offering his opinions on what was good and what was not, and often criticizing the critics. Morrissey became a big fan of Oscar Wilde, the flamboyant and controversial Victorian-era writer who loved fresh flowers and apparently other men something for which he served two years in prison. After working for both the tax department and the morgue of a local hospital, Morrissey decided that music was his thing. His first serious attempt at doing something was in a group called the Nosebleeds, which featured a guitarist by the name of Billy Duffy. But that group lasted only a short while, with Billy going on to form The Cult with Ian Asbury a couple of years later. In 1982, through some mutual friends, Morrissey met Johnny Marr, a teenage soccer star, and within seconds, they were collaborating on material. And that's the way it stayed for the next five years. Morrissey's words set to Mars music. They chose the name The Smiths because they couldn't think of anything more plain or anything more boring. That was very deliberate. They were making a statement. See, because back in the early 80s, alt-rock was all about synthesizers played by bands with fancy names like Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and Depeche Mode. The Smiths sounded unfancy and unpompous. It was also a homage to Patti Smith, the New York poet who was one of Morrissey's heroes, and it might also have been a nod towards a Manchester nightclub of the 1960s called Mr. Smith's. But, like a lot of Smith's history, the truth is shrouded in myth and legend. The Smiths made their live debut on October 4, 1982, at a Manchester club called The Ritz. The lineup changed a little bit, but by the time the band released their first single the following spring, things had settled down. It was Morrissey out front, Marr on guitar, Mike Joyce on drums, and Andy Rourke on bass. Here's that first single, May 1983. This is Hand in Glove. 
In order to understand the impact the Smiths would eventually have on British music, it's important to place everything in context. If you were a musician in 1983, you were in one of two camps. A, you were into heavy, hard rock, charged up on testosterone, or B, you were into synthesizers with dance beats. The Smiths were neither. The music was jangly pop with its roots clearly in the 50s and 60s. The arrangements were simple and stark. No big solos, no layers of overdubs. And Morrissey didn't sing. Rather, he kind of crooned like old school Bing Crosby from the 1930s. And the stuff that he sang about, hand in glove, was clearly about homosexuality. Another song called Reel Around the Fountain was about child molestation. Pretty Girls Make Graves was about murder. Their live gigs featured a gay go-go dancer. Morrissey surrounded himself with fresh flowers, and he often wore a clunky 50s-era hearing aid for some kind of aesthetic effect. Of course, the Smiths covered other topics like life and love, but in a different way. To some, these age-old sentiments were expressed more nakedly and more honestly by the Smiths. There was appeal in Morrissey's sense of doomed romanticism and his penchant for drama and his ability to convey real emotional agony. In short, the Smiths were just different and refreshing, especially to, and this is important, especially to sensitive, quiet souls who had been searching for a band, who had been searching for a type of music that could express the way they felt. This is from November 1983, and try to imagine the jolt this gave the hard rock and synthesizer crafts. I would go out tonight, but I haven't Short, sharp, danceable, singable British pop music from the Smiths. This charming man from late 1983, which would become one of their signature songs, thanks largely to Johnny Marr's guitar style. See, back then, again, we got to talk about context. This was a new and fresh sound. Nobody was playing the guitar like Johnny Marr back in 1983. For everyone else, it was all about power chords and fast solos, not this really tasteful, minimal, jangly stuff. The first Smiths album, which was self-titled, was a hit with the critics and a surprisingly large number of fans in Britain. Reaction was so strong that their record label had to rush release a second album of singles and b-sides and outtakes called Hatful of Hollow, just to buy the Smiths some time to record another proper studio album. One of the songs on that album was originally considered to be a throwaway, a song that was written and recorded in haste, and one that no one really felt held any commercial or artistic potential. It was originally the B-side of a 12-inch that really nobody cared about. Since then, though, this song has become one of the great retro hits ever. For some, this is their Smells Like Teen Spirit. For some, this is their Anarchy in the UK. For some, this is their Ziggy Stardust. It's the Smiths. And how soon is now? soon is now now regarded as one of the great alt-rock classics of all time when we come back we'll move into the middle part of the smith's short career and examine how the band ended up as an object of worship before blowing up completely don't go anywhere welcome back i'm alan cross and on this program we're trying to discover what's the big deal about the smiths 
So far, we've established that the Smiths were able to fill a niche in British rock in the middle 1980s. Their sound was unique, thanks to Johnny Marr's chiming guitar arrangements. Their lyrics were direct and to the point on many, many different emotional levels. And their frontman was, well, pretty charismatic. Love him or hate him, there was something about Morrissey that made you pay attention. The Smiths' second proper album came out on Valentine's Day 1985 and was called Meat is Murder. This was the typical, difficult second album, and usually the one cited by Smiths fans as their least favorite. After coming out of the gate so well with their critically acclaimed debut record, followed quickly by The Hatful of Hollow Collection, which also did very well, there was something confused about Meat is Murder. The band tried to expand their sound and subject matter, but couldn't quite do it. There were tirades about failed love and abusive school teachers, along with the expected self-absorbed melancholia. And this is the record where Morrissey began to be very outspoken about animal rights and meat eaters in general. For example, if you listen to the title track, you can hear a sample of hoofbeats of cattle as they're led, apparently, to the slaughterhouse. Again, it was a love him or hate him situation. Some were really turned off by what they perceived to be Morrissey's self-righteous vegetarian indignation. Others, however, embraced him for it. Morrissey was also very critical of Margaret Thatcher's conservative government in England. He had a lot to say about the state of music and the music industry, and he was never shy about offering his opinions on other stars of the day. For example, here's his take on Madonna. This is a quote. She is closer to organized prostitution than anything else. Okay. On reggae music. Reggae, to me, is the most racist music in the world. It's an absolute total glorification of black supremacy. That's what he said. On Margaret Thatcher. The only thing that could possibly save British politics would be Margaret Thatcher's assassin. You see what I mean? And if that wasn't enough, he had no trouble standing up and telling everyone how he thought that the whole Live Aid initiative was a very bad and very stupid idea. Now, of course, the press loved this because Morrissey was always good for a quote. These quotes made him a villain to some, but a hero to others. After all, he was one of the few pop stars of the day who was completely unafraid to speak his mind on a variety of very serious subjects. This is a sample of Mita's murder. It's called, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. In mid-June 1986, the Smiths released what is considered to be their masterpiece. This record was born of controversy, too. Morrissey was now taking as many shots in the press as he was dishing out. And there were big, big problems with Rough Trade, the Smiths' record company. Whatever the case, it was a huge improvement over Meet His Murder on all levels. Musically, lyrically, performance-wise, everything. It was it's simply a great collection of pop songs that sparkle with wit and satire and emotion and criticism and, uh, well, carefully crafted self-pity, if you could do such a thing. Topics include religion, the British class system, the monarchy, phony intellectuals, and even the Smiths Record Company. In fact, listen to this song. This is called Frankly Mr. Shankly. And wherever you hear the name Mr. Shankly, substitute the name Jeff Travis. He was the head of the record company. Do that and you'll see that the Smiths had absolutely no trouble 
biting the hand that fed them. Frankly, Mr. Shankly, this position I've held, it pays my way and it corrodes my soul. I want to leave. You will not miss me. I want to go down in musical. As big and as critically acclaimed as The Queen is Dead was, it wasn't enough to save the Smiths from disintegrating. The problems with rough trade got worse. There were also problems with management. Bass player Andy Rourke was temporarily fired due to a massive heroin addiction. Johnny Marr was nearly killed in a suspicious car accident on November 12, 1986. Several weeks later, they fired guitarist Craig Gannon, who had earlier been brought in as a fifth member. Meanwhile, Johnny Marr was getting very tired of Morrissey's dictatorial tendencies and his self-centeredness and his tirades in the press. But in the midst of all this turmoil, the band was able to record one final studio album. It was called Strange Ways Here We Come, Strange Ways being an infamous British prison. The album came out on May 19, 1987, and on September 12th of that year, it was official. The Smiths had broken up. Here was one of their last singles. Do you really think she'll Girlfriend in a Coma from Strange Ways Here We Come. And just to show you how widespread the Smiths' influence was for people of a certain generation, Canadian author Douglas Copeland wrote a book in 1986 entitled Girlfriend in a Coma, which was inspired in part by this particular song. So, there we have it. The Smiths were officially done by the autumn of 1987. Yet their mystery and their influence have endured. Why? Some of those answers are next. For a while after the Smiths' breakup, it looked as if Morrissey was going to become a major solo star. After all, during his time with the Smiths, he had become the center of a cult. Fans worshipped the man. Now, trust me on this. You either got it or you didn't. But if you did, you got Morrissey fever bad. Remember the fan at the beginning of the show? I don't know. It's just you're so special, and you're like the best singer ever. And I almost wanted to go to I mean, I almost got to your concert. It was so weird when I didn't get to it. And it, when it sold out in 20 minutes, I, I felt like... A series of solo albums followed, the two best being the first, Viva Hate from 1988, and the third, Your Arsenal from 1992. Here's a sample of that one. Note the irony dripping off this song. Although it got off to a promising start, Morrissey's solo career hit the skids in the mid-1990s. He went from record company to record company, seemingly unable to put together a consistent album worthy of such a legend. He moved to Los Angeles and pretty much kept to himself and refused to do any interviews, and he toured less and less. Meanwhile, Johnny Marr became a very hot session guitarist, working and touring with the Pretenders and The The. He teamed up with Barney Sumner of New Order in a group called Electronic, and they put out some pretty decent stuff. He became a friend and confidant of Noel Gallagher of Oasis, sometimes working in the studio with him. He worked with Beth Orton and Neil Finn and Paul McCartney and the Talking Heads. And finally, on February 4th, 2003, over 15 years after the Smiths broke up, Johnny Marr finally released a solo album. His group is called Johnny Marr and the Healers. The album is Boom Slang, and here's a sample. This is called The Last Ride. You got to believe, take it from me, but don't take too long, never gonna go wrong. Get up off the ground, back on your feet, it's easy to do. 
Although they were around really for just four years, the Smiths succeeded in becoming the definitive and the most influential British indie band of the 1980s. Not only did their success and their impact hasten the death of Technopop, it also laid the foundations for what would become Britpop a few years later. And we all know how that sound dominated British pop for nearly an entire decade. Maybe it's a case of you had to be there to really get the Smiths. But those who were there, and those who have been led back to the music of the Smiths, will tell you that this was one of the most magical bands in the history of alternative rock. While they were together, the Morrissey-Marr Alliance was a fine, fine songwriting team. They helped reintroduce the pleasures of the two- and three-minute pop song. And of course, there was Morrissey's sense of doomed romanticism, his lyrical wit, and his penchant for drama. Like Depeche Mode and The Cure, the Smiths gave troubled, sensitive, shy, and alienated music fans something to hang on to. No matter how badly they felt, they knew that they could embrace their Smiths records for comfort. Morrissey not only understood their pain, but could articulate it like no one else. And that, that ability to empathize, is what the big deal is about the Smiths. Will there ever be a Smiths reunion? Unlikely, given that there's a lot of bad blood between Morrissey, Johnny Marr, and the rest of the band. There was an ugly court battle that resulted in Morrissey having to pay out one million pounds in back royalties to other members of the band. And that had to hurt. And according to Morrissey, and please take this with a grain of salt because, well, it's, it's, it's Morrissey. He says, no promoter has ever come forward with a big money offer for a reunion tour. No one, ever. I find that surprising given the love the world continues to show for retro 80s music, but that's what Morrissey says. Meanwhile, if you'd like to know more about the Smiths, you need two books. The first is called Morrissey and Marr, The Severed Alliance by Johnny Rogan. The second is the one I mentioned earlier called The Smiths, Songs That Saved Your Life by Simon Goddard. If you're a fan, you will love it. If you're not a fan, stay away. Technical production for the show is by Rob Johnston. See you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.